Mormon Discussion Podcast is about helping Latter-day Saints like you lead with faith while tackling deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping the podcast alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Again, that's mormondiscussionpodcast, all one word, dot org. You can do this for as little as $1.50 a month or $12 a year. And this will also reward you by letting you listen to premium episodes like this one months before the general public has access. Thanks for listening. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Annie Hall, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? I'm doing great. How are you? Good, good. Glad to have you on, Annie. And I appreciate you uh, taking some time out of your day to sit down with us and talk. I think this is a a subject that uh, hopefully we'll be super sensitive to, but I, I think it's one that a lot of uh, people within LDS culture deal with. And I think that your story is just going to speak to to their heart. I wonder if you might just start us off before we get into the details of the topic. I wonder if you might just start us off sharing a a brief bio about yourself. Um, yeah, um, uh, not too exciting. I'm uh, I'm 25 years old. Um, I met my husband at Utah State University, and we've been married for almost five years. Um, I have two little boys. I stay at home with them, and I. I love to write and I love to run. Those are kind of my hobbies. I don't know. Is that a good enough bio? <laughs> yeah, that's perfect. Perfect. I uh, The reason I've got you on today, you and I have emailed back and forth several times to, to talk about uh, some of the issues with pornography addiction and and how this can be, I think, a, a big issue within our culture and to kind of maybe hit at some of the things we think that this issue brings in terms of expectations and assumptions and then kind of set those aside and kind of really get at the reality of what's going on. I wonder if you just might share with us just uh, maybe a, a, a brief synopsis, I guess, of, of what it is we're going to kind of talk about today. Okay. Um, well, I guess I'll just share a little bit of um, my story and experience with um, this. Um, I, um, when I met my husband, um, he, he was returned missionary. Um, we met in the singles ward, typical <laughs> Mormon story. Um, he's a great guy. We hit it off instantly. Um, and after we were engaged, he, um, confessed to me that he had, um, struggled on and off with pornography, um, basically since he was in his early teens. And so I was obviously, I was, I feel like I was pretty sheltered and naive about this. Um, you know, because if, if you're a worthy priesthood holder, then, then you shouldn't deal with this, you know? And, um, so I was pretty naive about it. I was upset about it, obviously. Wasn't sure if I should go forward and marry him or not. Um, I talked with family members. I taught, we talked with our bishop together and, um, our bishop basically, I think, I mean, I, he's just very uneducated about um, the reality of pornography and addiction, but um, he assured both of us that my husband was not addicted, that once we were married and um, um, could express himself in a healthy sexual way, that this would just all go away. And, um, and so that was, that was kind of, that was kind of it. And 
coupled with I, I really did feel strong confirmation from God that I should go through and marry my husband. And so so we did. And I was so grateful and happy to have that horrible part of our life just cleaned up and taken care of and not have to deal with it again. And then um, about three years into our marriage, um, my husband confessed that um, he was still struggling with it and it never really truly went away. And so at that point, we we really started learning the difference between repentance and recovery and that there is a difference and got really educated in it. And this, this, my husband got individual counseling, began 12 steps working through it. Um, um, I, I started reaching out to people. Um, you know, I, I did got educated, did recovery groups as well. And we've just been really open about our story and it's been really healing for both of us. And so, and so since then, since that point, once we had the right resources, my husband's been sober in recovery since then. Good. And I'm glad to, I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad to know that as we start in this, this podcast and to have this conversation that, that the ending to this day is, is a good ending and that things are going well and that there's been, been some ways to address this and to move past it. But, but the issue at heart is, is how we deal with this issue within our culture. Oops, sorry about that. The way we did it with this issue within our culture. And I wondered if you might start us off by talking about maybe your expectations of, and your husband's expectations of this formula we have in church and why maybe that doesn't, doesn't hold up or what your thoughts were on, on the, the church formula of gospel, of uh, scriptures, prayer and, and family home evening and all those other things that we kind of throw into the ingredient bowl that says this will fix anything. Right. Okay. Um, yeah, I think um, when everything came out with my husband after we were married, um, it kind of sent me into this trauma. I mean, obviously with my husband, but also with um, church things also, because I feel like um, it, more culturally, not doctrinally, it, we're, we're told, you know, family prayer, scripture study, family home evening, um, it's all to protect us from Satan. And I think every young woman's lesson is all do all the right things so that you can marry a worthy priesthood holder and get married in the temple, have a perfect, happy family. Um, and obviously, I, I didn't go into marriage with this mindset that it was all just going to be sunshine and roses and happiness all the time. You know, I knew there was going to be hard things. I just, um, I, I thought that we would mainly go through hard things together and it wouldn't be my husband putting, um, an issue with through his decisions in our marriage, if that makes sense. But, um, so I thought I, I was always, I mean, I wasn't perfect growing up, but I, I feel like I was, um, pretty obedient. And, and so there was this formula, you know, A plus B, do all the right things equals a perfect, happy family. And, um, and that's just how, how I kind of thought of things. And so once, once all, when, when things came out with my husband, I was, I was, it totally shook my whole foundation of, of how my testimony, I had to restructure that all because, um, we did do family scripture study. We always did family home evening. We went to the temple once a month. We, we performed so perfectly that, or that it was confusing how, how that this could happen. And I think, um, for my husband, it, I mean, I think, you know, he had this, this problem to the side and, and had always been told by priesthood leaders to, to read his scriptures, to pray and, and be so diligent. If he's perfectly diligent in that, then this problem wouldn't go away. And so I think for my husband, it really fostered this, this perfectionism, um, that if, if he had all, if he could only get his scriptures, his spirituality down perfect, then this problem would go away. And, and when you realize that the, the formula we have in church, which you guys were, 
had as part of your family life and that it wasn't working, what was, what was the emotion of that? I mean, like, how does it, I can only imagine, cause I've had those moments too where you're like, okay, I've got this problem and these are the five things that if I do these five things, then the problem goes away and, and then it doesn't and you realize the problem doesn't get solved with simply, simply throwing prayers and scripture study at it. What was the emotion of all that? Well, I think initially it was, it was a mix between just complete trunk grieving, I guess, grieving and also just bitterness and anger at the beginning. Um, going to church was really, really painful for me at the beginning. I just want to yell at everybody bearing their testimony. And I, I, when everything came out too, I was a young women's leader and I was supposed to be teaching about um, that month was all about marriage and dating. And so it was just, it was horrible. It was traumatic for me. I was, I was angry. I would just want to say this doesn't work. I would be teaching these girls what they needed to do for their happy marriage. And I want to be like, it doesn't matter what you do. Your husband's going to screw you over anyway. So anyway, I was really, really bitter and, and sad at the beginning that, that this wasn't working, that, that what I had thought didn't work. Yeah, and I and I totally hear that, and I I felt some of those same feelings with different issues in my my time in the church. That we we often sit in Sunday school and we'll ask a a, a question about behavior in the scriptures, and some the teachers always got the manual there to tell them to ask what what could we do that would better help this situation, and and those four or five consistent answers are always thrown out. But often those answers, while certainly good things, and certainly I think part of the equation, don't in and of themselves solve our problems, uh, at, at least at times. Um, I did want to just ask you, I mean, obviously at some point here, you're, you're, you and your husband have gone back, and again, you and I have talked about this beforehand, we know kind of the, the direction we want to take the interview. I know that you and your husband have sought out priesthood help, and uh, and I served as a bishop for, for a while, and I... I've had people come to me with similar kinds of issues. Uh, what did you find in respects to to seeking out priesthood assistance and, and what that part of the experience was like? Yeah, I, I think I came to the realization once once we found the recovery aspect um, that I, I think for the most part, um, bishops are are not very educated in, in what addiction actually is. And um, and also I mean, statistically speaking, there's probably plenty of bishops that are dealing with this and are addicted also. And so they're stuck in this also and then trying to counsel people how to not be stuck in it. And that's probably not very effective either. Um, I think in, in my own experience, and I feel like we were pretty blessed in, and I have a lot of friends that have had gotten really kind of traumatic and unhelpful advice. Um, but me personally, I had only worked with two bishops, one when before we got married and then one when everything came out. And I already had shared um, my singles ward bishop kind of, you know, assured me he wasn't addicted and, and just said, you know, getting married will fix everything, which I think that the sad thing about that is I think it kind of put all this pressure and responsibility on me that, that I was going to fix my husband through marriage. And that obviously isn't a healthy mindset to have um, because this addiction has nothing to do with healthy sexuality. It's pornography is the opposite of that. Um, and then my, the second time when we, we uh, met with the Bishop, I'm he, he was really uneducated about it and he kind of, um, didn't, he didn't say anything really. And now we kind of just, and at that point we had found wh- how we were going to work our recovery. And, um, 
So, yeah, so I don't feel like my experiences with bishops and priesthood leaders had been that horrible. Um, but, but I did have, and sometimes still do have just some frustrations with, um, just how culturally, how, um, how we're kind of, I feel like there's a lot of, um, cultural, uh, assumptions that that you know if you a lot of pamphlets booklets and the ch- published by the church say you know if, if you're struggling with this go go see your bishop and um and so i think it creates this the bishop will fix it and then also when the bishop has this mindset like um that that he is the answer to the problems and that he can't say you know i don't know how to fix all this um and um, I, I guess another thing that we've realized, too, since we've been in recovery, that, that addiction affects you spiritually, emotionally, and physically, and so, or, or mentally, yeah, or ph- I guess physically slash mentally is where your, your brain physiologically um, is altered. And so it's almost like coming into the bishop with, with diabetes, saying, you know, I have diabetes, and he says, okay, well, why don't you just pray it away? You know, it just, it can't work that way. And so, so a priesthood leader can, can be very helpful in the spiritual process, but he doesn't know how to help emotionally, and, and he doesn't know how to physiologically heal your brain. And so if those two things aren't also taken care of, then then the person will relapse again and again. He can repent over and over again, but he's not going to get into recovery if he doesn't fix those other two areas in his life. I totally get the idea that leaders at times will offer uh, solutions thinking that those come from God. And, and I remember, you know, you, you said that one leader in particular said that once you get married, that this will fix the problem. I can only imagine when the problem wasn't fixed by being married that you, and I, I don't want to put words in your mouth and I don't want to lead the witness, but did you, I mean, you had to have felt like maybe on some level, like, what am I doing wrong? Like they promised me that this would be fixed once we got married. So I'm obviously not doing this right. Yeah, I think I definitely felt that, that being not enough or I must not be doing something right or else he wouldn't be struggling with this. Um, and I think also what, um, going back to just priesthood leaders and priesthood council, I, I was frustrated about that. Um, but I also had, when I was engaged, I had enough experiences, just be- personal experiences between me and God, not just listening to a priesthood leader telling me to marry my husband, but um, I felt really... Um, really assured in my decision to marry my husband and and not just because priesthood leaders assured me, but also because I had personal experiences with God that I, I knew that, that God was supporting my decision to marry my husband. So um, when, when this wasn't working and, and when I felt that reassurance, when I was engaged, I kind of took that as, you know, when I had prayed to God, like, I don't want to marry this man if I'm going to be dealing with this in my marriage. And I still got that confirmation that I should marry him. So, so at that point I was totally angry at God and you know you he supported and confirmed this decision and um but but this problem resurfaced again and so I was angry at God and um my anger um I kind of worked through that I had a lot of um spiritual experiences just between me and God that and I finally after a month or so came to the realization look God knew my husband was addicted to pornography way before I even met my husband and you know if if this and he still confirmed my decision. So I just came to the conclusion that, you know, God loves me. I always have known that. And so this is clearly his will and his plan for me, um, regardless of the outcome of my marriage. And so that's kind of how I came to peace with that, even though I still had frustration maybe with priesthood leaders or, fresh, you know, insecurities within myself. Yeah, yeah. And I know that in your 
your time of kind of being aware of this and dealing with it and you and your husband working through this, that you've also had a chance to to talk to others who are on a similar journey. Any feedback as far as things that they've they've said or were thinking about that they express that uh, that helps us kind of make a connection on some of the similarities on these issues? Yeah, um, I, I can't say how many friends I've talked to whose um, bishops have told them that to be more sexual with their husbands and that'll, that'll help it. And, you know, after we've learned about this, that's kind of like telling an alcoholic, you know, help your alcoholic husband by drinking wine with him every night. You know, it's, it's totally not good advice at all. So there's a lot of that. There's a lot of um, focus on your own sins. You know, there's a lot of, you know, um, this was your husband's problem, but now that you're married, it's your pro- it's ever it's it's a problem that you now have together, and so you guys need to work on this together. Well, that's damaging because um, obviously, I mean, you can't you can't control somebody, you can't force them to to change. If it's, it's this is an individual problem that they individually brought into their marriage, and they need to heal from it individually before your marriage can even begin to start healing. Um, I, I had one friend. Um, I think she, um, she she wrote, I feel betrayed, unsupported, and misunderstood by most of my priesthood leaders in my life. I feel like culture has moved away from, um, quote, if you lust after a woman in your heart, to, quote, it's normal and somewhat acceptable, yet families are struggling and breaking apart. I see women as sacrificial and thrown under the bus in order to not make men feel bad for their indiscretions. Um, another example, um, I had a friend, um, who had been praying and pondering for years, you know, been married to her husband for a long time, um, whether or not to separate from her husband who was continually acting out in his addiction. And when she finally got a confirmation from God to separate, her bishop called her and told her that he strongly feels that she should stay with her husband. So that's obviously confusing for women. Do do you follow your priesthood leader or do you follow your gut and, um, or, and, and your own personal inspiration. And she's the one who's there seeing her husband all the time. The bishop often um, doesn't see the whole picture. You know, they always see um, the husband coming in when he's really repentant and remorseful. There's an analogy in, in the recovery world that a lot of wives of um, addicts identify with. And um, it's, you know, a, a husband intentionally, he's driving in a car with his family and he, he intentionally swerves his car and, and into oncoming traffic and crashes this, the car. And so the entire family is bleeding and suffering except people, you know, um, priesthood leaders, family members, friends, they arrive on the scene and immediately take care of the husband and forgive the husband and show so much um, compassion for the husband. And they leave the wife and the children bleeding on the side of the road. And um, they kind of have this idea of if you can heal the husband from the car crash, then the whole family will heal. And um, they can see how sorry the husband feels initially, and, and they'll tell him to repent. And they forget to ask how many times he's intentionally crashed the car over and over again. Um, they tell the wife that it's really important for her to forgive her husband and get back into the car that he'll most likely crash again. Um and they tell her that it's really hard for him not to crash the car on purpose again and that he'll if if he'll even keep crashing the car on purpose if she doesn't get back in the car with him she needs to help him not crash the car by being in the passenger seat and um if she decides after a lot of prayer and um you know that 
driving in this car with her husband is, is too dangerous for herself and her family, she's often criticized by church members and family members and friends because she doesn't understand the atonement and because these traumatic car accidents are just a small moment in the eternities. They're really common. It's common for men to purposely crash the car. Um, you know, she's breaking covenants. If she doesn't get back into the dangerous car and because her kids will be really messed up if they get out of the car, you know, um, so so I think a lot of times um, in in this pornography addiction, um, the, the women and the family often get get completely forgotten. And I don't think it's on purpose. I think we just have this assumption that if you, if you fix the husband, um, you'll fix the family. And I think there's two problems with that. One is that the, the family needs, needs their own help. And maybe that help doesn't necessarily come from priesthood leaders, but they need help. And also often these priesthood leaders aren't giving these husbands the, the help that will make them stop crashing the car over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I heard, hear that. And I remember, you know, you setting the outline and me looking at, this analogy of uh, of a husband who drives who drives the car and, and crashes it on purpose, and I I think it does. If I'm hoping that if there's any priesthood leaders out there listening who who struggle with this idea, maybe that analogy will help open our eyes up to perhaps a different approach that reaches out to each member of the family and helps them completely separately, I think, in some instances from the person who has the, the problem. Can I offer you, some, some suggestions? And um, Please. Obviously, this is just kind of my input, and, and every, I'm sure every family and every wife is different. But um, I loved what my friend Bishop told her husband when, when he confessed um, struggling with this. And, and the bishop said, I'll work with you on repentance, but you need to find a recovery plan. Here's a list of ideas for where to start. Come back and show me your plan. So if if the I mean and that's really if you think about it, that's the bishop's role is to help on repentance. Not um he's not set apart to to cure addiction or cure disease or um. So I really liked that. But but it would be very helpful if the bishops educated enough to to know where to send these people and to strongly encourage them that that they probably need additional help. Um. Also, for the wife, I was kind of thinking, you know, what, because I think it's really um, sometimes awkward, difficult, painful for wives to even talk to a male person about this because it's embarrassing. It's, you know, you don't want to talk to another man about these intimate details in your life. Um, but I think looking back, what I wish my bishops would have done for me is I wish one, they would have, um, offered me a priesthood blessing. Um, it's kind of traumatic, especially at first when, when you realize you're not there, you don't have a worthy priesthood holder in your home. And I, I can go off on how I don't even like the phrase worthy priesthood leader anymore. But, um, if I could have been offered a priesthood blessing and then also strongly encouraged to educate myself about addiction and, um, also, um, strongly encouraged to reach out to other women who've been through this. I think a lot of, oh, this is another thing bishops from, I've talked to friends, um, a lot of bishops will encourage their wives to, to keep this secret or, you know, keep, not talk to anybody about this because it's embarrassing, but addiction thrives in secrecy and, um, for both the husband and wife to bring this to light in a safe place, um, is very important, I think. Um, also, one other thing that I wish um, more bishops knew is that on and off impulsive pornography use, no matter how long the period of sobriety between each use is, even if it's years, um, is not just a problem. It's an addiction that needs to be treated as such. 
Yeah, and I and I think those are both important. And let me ask you this because um, I've, I'm delving into some of the online discussion boards where people will have conversations about pornography. And one of the things I pick up there that people talk about, I've had times where individuals have stated that there's a difference between a pornography addiction and simply looking at pornography every once in a while, but it not having any control in their life. And I struggle with that because I think it can be a slippery slope. But but even if we do allow those two things to be, I guess, somewhat different, do you see them as separate? Or in your mind, is any viewing of pornography uh, part of an addiction? Um, You know... Since I have entered the world of recovery, I do have a really difficult um, time seeing them as separately separate. Um, just because on and off, um, you can think of it as on and off, or you know, just dabbling in it here and there. Um, but at the same time, it's something you're you're going back to. It's something you're doing usually in secret. Um, you're usually doing it to to numb or escape. And if it's something you're returning to, that's also a cycle. It's a it's a circle. And also, um, I think this day and age pornography is just not what it was 20 years ago. With internet pornography, I mean, anybody can become addicted. They're you know, kids are being exposed to hardcore videos that are that's not even normal sexuality. It's violent. It's graphic. It's with multiple people. Um, it's it's very very addicting and different. It's not just Playboy magazines under your dad's mattress anymore. Um, so I, I think it's a completely slippery slope, and um, and really it's a dangerous, it's a dangerous world we live in now. Because I don't think yeah. anybody. I mean, this isn't even a man's addiction anymore. Um, most most there's a lot of studies that say up to 75% of Christian men are viewing pornography at least once a month, and 30% of Christian women. So this isn't just a man's problem anymore. No, and I appreciate hearing that, and I think you hit on a big point, which is the stuff is just so um, saturated in our world. I, I remember, you know, I'm, I grew up as a non-Mormon, and there were members of of my family who I knew had access to pornography, but it wasn't something I had access to. Like you said, you either had to walk in the back room of some movie store that had a, an adult section that you couldn't even get into, or you had to find some special section of magazines or whatever. It wasn't something that even, oh, I'm only 36 years old. When I was a kid, it wasn't something that was prevalent or easy to get to. And I'm so scared for uh, my children and the other youth that grow up in this world because it is essentially in front of you almost constantly, uh, which makes the world a really tough place uh, to be in and avoid this stuff. I think another thing that, that's hard and why I also think it's important for priesthood leaders not to diagnose um, this as an addiction or non-addiction. I do not think it's the bishop's responsibility to tell you if you're addicted or not. Um, because an, an addict or even a non-addict is probably completely embarrassed if they're coming to confess this problem and they're totally going to minimize what they've seen or how frequently they've seen it. Um, I guess also just teaching complete honesty and integrity um, is also very important because uh, most addicts will minimize. And so it really, and, and, you know, looking back, I'm, I'm sure my husband minimized how, how big of a problem this was to priesthood leaders. So it's just a slip. It's just tr- a tricky situation when you've got um, this, this triangle of wives, husbands, priesthood leaders, and, and there's minim- minimizing and lying and um, not everybody being educated about what's really going on. It just can get really messy. <laughs> 
So thank goodness for God's grace. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think you make a good point there too, talking about the fact that while I do think that there are good bishops out there and and many may have the the wherewithal to recognize what an addictive behavior is, that on some level we have to almost stop making bishops in the church be the end-all, be-all for problems and allow us as an institution to acknowledge kind of what what their shortcomings are in terms of professional diagnoses and dealing with, say, mental illness and depression and, and those other types of things in addictive behavior and allow people to feel empowered to seek out professionals and others who who perhaps are better qualified to help in these kinds of things. Yeah. I, I you mentioned earlier the worthiness issue. I want to hit on that. What what are your thoughts on the worthiness issue and, and what do you mean by that? I, I guess I I can kind of understand why you know, you need to be living a certain way to to go to the temple, but for some reason I'm still kind of struggle with with this worthiness when it comes to taking the sacrament because um you know, all we're doing is we're we're covenanting to be willing to to be like Christ. You know, the word willing is in the sacrament prayer. And so, um, you know, it's like either we're and none of us are going to be perfect. That's why the sacrament is offered to us every week. So um, it's like either everybody is worthy of taking the sacrament or nobody's worthy. And so um, I really um, struggle with with that worthiness with the sacrament and, and how bishops just um you know, kind of personally, you know, and prayerfully decide, you know, how many weeks an addict should go without taking the sacrament or, you know, or not even an addict, anybody, um, when they come with worthiness issues. Um, and also, I, I just think that word worthiness, I, I just don't like that word. I wish we could <laughs> change it to something else, you know, qual- I don't even know if qualified, I don't know. But the whole worthiness, I just think it really fosters perfection, just perfectionism and addiction in our church that, you know, I can really empathize with, with people who are caught up in this addiction cycle or a, a 12-year-old boy um, who doesn't even really understand all of this stuff, why, why they wouldn't confess, why they would lie, or why maybe they would confess once to a bishop but if they they get caught up in it again how embarrassing to have to go back again and again and again um and then you know and then they follow this counsel that the bishop's giving and it doesn't work so why why would they confess again if it didn't make make a difference the first time around you know and and just the whole passing the sacrament taking the sacrament it's so um it's it's you know i think probably um if you're not able to take the sacrament it must be really embarrassing and i i i'd assume you'd be really insecure and worried what people are thinking i mean obviously um true repentance you wouldn't care or whatever but i just i just can empathize with these usually young men and old men or you know why why they would keep lying or keep it to themselves or they don't want to be judged they don't want to be noticed Right. No, and I hear that. And I think you've hit on another thing there, which is worthiness is tricky, right? We're all unworthy. We've all done something during the last week that deserves repentance. At what point is the, is the issue so serious that we must have some form of public repentance? Where is that line at? And, and why are these 35 things okay to repent of without having to see the bishop or to stop taking the sacrament, but these 35 things over here are detrimental enough that they require that it's just so much messier. Yeah. And there's, there's a huge great, it's a gray area. I think it, it depends on the bishop and, um, and I guess I, I should also share a wife's perspective too, how, how this, this 
can also be kind of traumatic. I mean, there's there's been men that have that I've had friends whose husbands have been acting out that week. They go confess to the bishop, and he just says, you know what, go to the temple. It'll give you strength to not deal with this. And and for a wife, that's that's just I mean, it's it's like betrayal from a priesthood leader. Also, that that. You know what? Does worthiness matter? You know, we talk about it over the pulpit, how important it is. But you, you care about my husband's reputation more than you care about, you know, this this worthiness or care about me or how, you know, if that makes sense. It's just it's just messy from all angles. I can empathize with both the wife and the husband. Right. And I think it's important to realize that it's messy and that. There's a lot of different people involved. There's a lot of different motives involved. There's a lot of different reasons for for trying to correct things one way and trying to correct them another. And, and yet often, as you pointed out earlier, the bishop or the church leader is focusing his concern on what he feels is the best way to help the husband. But at times, those those prescriptions or those uh, those counseling ideas sometimes can be absolutely detrimental to the other people involved in the situation. Yeah. No, I, I hear that. Um, you talk a little bit in the outline about a lack of vulnerability in church. And this is something I think that not just in this issue, but just generally, especially, especially when we talk about the podcast that I do and, and knowing that there's members in each congregation who have serious doubts and yet there's no place to go to talk to or to open up or to be authentic and allow yourself to, to in a sense be vulnerable. Talk about that lack of vulnerability in church. Yeah, um, I, I mean, I completely agree with you. Even in, in in lots of areas, there's, you know, it just seems like there's there's regular trials that are okay to be seen from the outside, and then there's these secret trials. And and it, I I think, you know, I think what Christ would want His church to be like is a place where we can mourn with those that mourn and comfort those that stand in need of comfort in in all areas. But I think just as a result of culture and imperfect people, there there's a lot of shame associated with doubt, with addiction, with unworthiness, um, and, and there's obviously judgment. Um, so especially at, at the beginning when things came out with my husband, I, I church was really painful. It was I just felt like I I was being fake. I was completely putting on a face, and um, you know I I think I guess in in pornography addiction alone we refer to it as a plague. And if you think of a plague, I mean it, it's hitting every family. And I really believe that this is is now a trial that is is going to hit every family in one way or another. Except we don't as a church culture we don't treat this like a plague. You know, um, in my experience at church, there's a lot of avoid it or else it will destroy you kind of talk or if you've dabbled in it, um, prayed away, and um, it gives a little, very little hope for people that are that are caught in it. And it's just it's sad to me that we can't be you know completely open. Like you know your son's struggling with this. Well, this is what's worked for our family. Or your husband's help is struggling. Or you just found out your husband's struggling. Let's bring you a meal. Let's um, let's take care of you like we do in other trials. Um, one one of my friends on her blog, I really loved this quote. She said, um, "She said outside these walls, pornography is considered normal, healthy, and people are shamed for shunning it. But inside of these walls, pornography is this awful menace destroying us, and we can never speak of it because it's too inappropriate. How are we to be united in Zion if such a large percentage of us are isolated in secrecy and shame? There are so many tears, angry tears, angry tears from my sisters who are hurting, dying, desperate to have someone look at them and say, I can see you're bleeding.' Please. Please let me tend to your wounds. 
They dare not speak up, though, because of the things those people said, that no way someone would lie in their Temple Recommend interview, that we are so completely devoid of good men. Guys, we're all lying. We're lying to ourselves, and we're stuck. And the we here isn't addicts and their spouses. It's everyone. Wake up. Kind of what she said. Um, but one thing um, that, that has helped me um, heal and kind of deal with this um, is I, I finally got to a point because I was just so bitter and angry and bugged at church at how fake we're all being. Um, I finally, um, my we our family just moved um, about six months ago, and, and we just kind of decided it was a great opportunity just, just to be open and vulnerable and authentic. We didn't know anybody anyway, um, and <laughs> if they were going to judge us for, for the way we are and for the trials we're dealing with then we didn't really want to be friends with them anyway so um my husband has been completely open about it um, he gave a, um, a lesson about it in elders quorum um, i gave a talk and totally shared our story and and i think what was shocking for people is just the fact that how um open we are about it but um at least and i guess it's none of my business what people say behind my back but everyone's been very supportive of, of us they haven't treated us any differently and in just six months we've had um six families come to us you know uh four wives have talked to me in my ward saying that they're struggling with this too so um i think i think the only way we can change the vulnerability problem is just being vulnerable ourselves and and put ourselves in a position that if people need help they they know where they can go to yeah, and I think that's huge. And I think that, that extends beyond just this issue. You know, I mentioned the podcast and people with doubts. It often happens that if somebody will stand up and say, Hey, I'm struggling with whatever it is, XYZ, that somebody else now knows that, okay, that person is comfortable talking about it. That means they're a safe person to go to and have a conversation about this issue with. And as you've talked about, we treat sexual sin as this gross, disgusting, embarrassing thing. And by labeling it that way, by our body language, treating it that way, everybody just keeps it a big secret. And what we have to do is just make it, it's sin. Sin is sin. And that the guy who has a word of wisdom issue, everybody knows he has a word of wisdom issue. Yet the person who has a sexual uh, sin as an issue, they're so, I think, culturally embarrassed or shamed there's no way to really even come out and try and talk about it. And as you point out, the, the first step in that is for somebody to step up and say, you know what, I'm going to have the courage and the wherewithal to just stand up and say, look, I'm having a hard time with this. And these are some of the things we're doing to try to work on that. And I like that you hit on that, that essentially these kinds of issues for those who thought in a simplified way that the church, church's answers in council would fix these problems and it's not – all of a sudden their their trust in the institution is let down and there's room there for a faith crisis to come in and and I think we all just have to be more open there was a talk um I'm trying to think offhand but it was at uh, BYU speeches uh, website I'm looking it up right now I'll be really quick here they it's a recent speech that was just given um by a brother the, the title of the speech is Both Feet Forward. It was given by a brother named Scott Swifford. And in his talk, he talks about sharing the gospel. But what he says is we have to be authentic. We, we can't, we can't just always share our, our smiley, bright, sunshiny suit and tie side with everyone that if we're open with people and let them see into who we really are, that things in the gospel actually would be much more positive. And I think it hits to the, 
to what you're saying, which is if people would just be willing to speak up and open up and, and not shame each other for these kinds of struggles and just say, oh my goodness, you know, Brother Jones is struggling with that. You know, my, my dad struggled with that. I'm going to go talk to Brother Jones and share with him some things that helped uh, my father out. And I think if we could come to grips with dealing with things on that level, so much more progress could be made rather than these simplified answers that we sit back and give thinking that they address everything. And I, I just want to add to that. I think a lot of times the, the shame and embarrassment is, is on us. It's not, you know, we're, we're worried what people are thinking about us. And I think oftentimes they, they're not judging. And if they are judging, it's, if you can detach from that, I mean, doesn't matter anyway. I want to, I want to finish off. I've got three questions here left for you. Uh, one of them is in the outline. You, you have a section there titled Common Struggles of Wives of Porn Addicts. I want to, I want to go over that. I want you to kind of speak to what it is that those not necessarily those going through it directly, but those who are being impacted by the other person's choices, what they're going through and give us a feel of some of these, these commonalities between the spouses. And I think this carries over too to children or parents, uh, siblings of people who are having a hard time. At least some of these do, but specifically with spouses, which I think it's the hardest on. What are some of those common struggles? Yeah, I think, um, well, first of all, there's some with, um, complete, um, completely questioning God and his existence. Um, then there's, um, difficulty with priesthood leadership. You know, they're counseled to follow them, support them, and that they're inspired. But when they follow their counsel, it's in their own personal experience, it's doing more harm than good. Um, there's also, you know, priesthood leaders, um, don't understand that 70% of wives of porn and sex addicts are suffering from betrayal trauma and betrayal trauma has similar symptoms to PTSD. And so a wife who has faithfully paid her tithing her entire life will finally get the courage because it can be super shameful and embarrassing, you know, to ask her bishop to help pay for counseling and often he won't financially help. Um, so that shakes them up quite a bit. Um, they'll have a shaken testimony of the prophet or of the church that, you know, if, if he's a prophet and if this is the true church, why why isn't there more talk about this, about how to find recovery and um, about how women are hurting or, or what to do to get better? You know, there's there's not very, um, like I said, the women are often just forgotten about. They, they, they'll talk about the the addict, but not, but not not the loved one who's hurting because of it. Um They'll, they can feel betrayed by, um, what they're taught growing up, you know, keep the commandments and you'll be blessed or get married in the temple and you'll have a solid marriage or whatever. Um, they can be triggered by all the emphasis on happy families, um, at church, um, missionary work. They, um, can struggle with that because why is there so much pressure to convert people to a place that causes them so much trauma? Um, obviously polygamy, um, why can men who are, a lot of times porn and sex addicts um, have more than one woman sealed to them. Um, and also just the Joseph Smith polygamy, you know, is he just another sex addict? Um, in the temple, um, women covenant to their husbands and not to God, and they covenant to hearken to their husband, which often makes women vulnerable to spiritual manipulation. Um, and, you know, women are queens and priestesses unto their husbands, um, whereas men are kings and priests unto God. Um, in the temple, it seems like women must go through men to reach God, and that's not consistent with their personal experience. Um, the temple is no longer a safe place for some women after their husbands will confess to being triggered um, and or fantasizing about Eve during a session, sadly enough. Um, there's 
uh, emphasis on perfection, looking good, and discomfort with being real or imperfect at church. Um, and then just the emphasis on a woman's ideal role in the home. They feel like they were just set up to being financially vulnerable and left with no options when um, their husbands are mistreating them. Those are good. And I hope that people listening who are aware of these kinds of issues in their own home or in the home of, of family or friends uh, will connect with that because I think these are common things that uh, that these spouses deal with. I, I want to ask you a question that you don't have on the outline, but I think it's crucial because I think those listening who are dealing with this kind of thing, the the question that I assume is on their minds is, okay, we've we've discussed the problem. Tell me what the solution is. I'm desperate for something to help begin to fix this and repair this relationship and to help my spouse to be able to begin to to not make these kinds of choices and to not exhibit this kind of behavior. What, what were the, what was the path that, that led to what you called recovery? Well, for us, it was um, kind of a rock bottom, an individual rock bottom for, for each of us. You know, I got to a point um, and luckily for us, our rock bottoms happen at the same time. Oftentimes women know their husbands are addicts and they're, they won't, um, they won't, agree with their wife, you know, they're in denial that they're even addicted. But um, I think, and this is also something that probably doesn't get emphasized at, at church enough, is how important individual um, healing is before you can even begin to heal the marriage. Um, you know, because we're always focused on helping each other, um, but but um, the loved one needs to know that they didn't cause it, they can't control it, they can't fix it. Um, and a lot of times uneducated people think that, you know, that they can, and that kind of fosters codependency in a marriage. Um, but I think the most important um, thing for both the, the addict and the loved one is um, to get educated in, get educated and then reach out and find healing outside of um, outside of just um, your marriage and outside of your priesthood holder. Um, and and without education, um, a loved one can decide, you know, what what is safe for her, whether whether she should stay or whether she should go or stay in limbo longer, because um, because you can't force your husband to heal. You can't you can't force any of that. You know, you can't. It's all agency. And so unfortunately, I, I feel really blessed that that my husband has chosen recovery and sobriety. Um, but but I also acknowledge that that, that there was nothing that, that I did that could, um, that was his choice. It wasn't me forcing that on him. And I think loved ones need to, to learn about boundaries and how to set boundaries, not to punish, um, their addict, but to, to make them feel safe. And so I think that's the most important, um, it's healing individually first before you even begin to start healing together. I think a lot of times another mistake that's often made is right after you just throw them into marriage counseling and when really, um, the addict usually needs to work with um, a certified sex addiction therapist and work through their own stuff that they brought into the marriage before they even can start healing a marriage. Because addiction in a marriage is a whole other ballgame than just regular marital problems. So you mentioned professional help, uh, some kind of therapy or someone to counsel with you. Were there any other kinds of resources that you can look back on and say this was helpful? Uh, was there anything else that uh, that you found yourself having access to that that benefited either you or your husband or both of you? Um, yeah, so so many resources. I feel like um, I feel like when we had finally surrendered to God, God just just dumped us with with so many resources, and and they're out there. They're just usually not um something you find through your bishop and um 
and some luckily some people do get these resources through bishops but um there there are um blogs out there and that's how i initially found recovery was just through um i found um i i think it's called i don't know um but there's a website that just has a list of all these um blogs of addicts and LDS addicts and LDS wives of addicts. And, and that's what, how I kind of got figured out, got into the recovery world was from reading other people's stories and others experience online. And, um, you know, I found recovery groups, um, uh, through other religions. I went, I went to a, a Methodist church and I went to a recovery group there. Um, I also, um, did a, um, I don't think it was sponsored by the church, but, um, an LDS, um, phone-in meeting. This is all for me. Um, my husband um, ended up, he doesn't do the church's 12 steps. He does SA, but it's just another great 12-step um, resource. So um, there, I went to, I was lucky enough, I was able to go um, to a retreat um, for women who are struggling with this. And also I went to a conference in Utah. It's called the Togetherness Project. Um, and it's just classes on on addiction and recovery from addiction. It's it's mainly for loved ones um, of addicts, mostly spouses. Um, oh, I I mean I could go on. There's there's so many resources that have have really blessed us, and and most of them, actually all of them, were not um, were not put out by the church, but but we're all um, a lot of them were LDS people um, that that gave us this information or whatever, or it's geared towards LDS people. Um, but I also think that the church is making a lot of progress in their um, addiction recovery program. So I'm excited about the progress they're making. Yeah. And I think you, you hit on two things there, which is one, don't assume that the church is the, the only place to find answers. And the second thing is that it seems like the solution or at least part of the solution is found in finding community where others have traveled the same path and just to kind of be able to not only lean on them, but to, to look to them for things that have been helpful and, and kind of picking, I guess, you know, when you, when you talk with 20 people about a problem, you may get 20 different pieces of good advice and you can kind of put that together and kind of come up with your own plan that tends to take the best of all of them. Um, I think also for me, and it must have been cultural thing, or I just think I always did before, just, you know, look, look to, to the head honchos of the church to have the answer to, to all the problems of ever, you know, but you think of all the problems in the world and that they can't perfectly, I mean, they're not specialists in all of this. They um, can give you spiritual advice that can apply to all of it. Um, but, but, uh, you know, I think, I think of Christ and, and how, you know, he, he's been through every experience. He, um, he felt it all personally. And, and like you said, with community, these are, these are people that, that can really help because they've, they've been through it. And I think, I think I, I forgot about that, that, that how important it is to, to look to people, you know, the people that can truly empathize are people that have, have been through it and, and know the way out, not the people that have never been through it and, and are, you know, giving you vague advice toward to specifically heart challenges, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it does. And I think just sexuality in general, I think, and, and again, I get it. It's a sensitive topic. It's a topic that has a lot of taboos to it. But I see the church very hesitant to talk about sexuality in a marriage, about pornography, about masturbation, about all these kinds of things. There might be a little blip in a For Strength of Youth pamphlet about each of these kinds of topics, but very rarely do we see a conference address that specifically addresses these issues. And 
oftentimes too, when we do address them, we address them from the thou shalt nots, but we really don't put these in a, in a productive framework that gives somebody some positives to take away that, that would give them a way to work the other direction and to improve on these things and to, to repair them. Right. Um, one thing that's helped me kind of let go of some frustrations with that too, is the more I realized how, um, cause, cause another, problem that I'd like to add with that also is that, you know, we're seeing unhealthy sexuality everywhere. I mean, you don't have to look at porn to see the, the how sexualized our, the media is, how you look at, you go to the grocery store and there's, there's lies about um, sexuality. You know, it's, I mean, the magazines, billboards, commercials, it's, it's everywhere. We're living in this sexualized world and nobody's talking about healthy sexuality. So, how how are how are the youth even supposed to know what sexual healthy sexuality looks like when all they've seen is unhealthy sexuality through porn or through just the media and um and so I think I I I mean I've been through this bitterness with the church and why aren't they addressing this and the more I realize it's you know that this is you're supposed to learn this in the home you know this is where and, and I I just think with this generation um our parents weren't don't have the re they weren't ready for this nobody was ready for the internet and for the media and and i think you know where the change is really going to come is through the mothers and fathers who know and who've been through it and who who are going to know how to teach their kids because they've been affected by it personally and so i think that's where the the real change is going to happen i mean and this is what (laughs) the church does emphasize is is that you need to teach in the home and that's the most important place to start I want to finish with maybe on a, maybe a more positive note because I think that the story I obviously you shared is, is, has a good ending. Um, you and your husband, he's, he's been on this road to recovery and, and been, uh, clean from this for a year and a half, you said, which I think is impressive and shows that there is positive outcomes that can come from dealing with this and, and working at putting this type of behavior behind you. But I also want to end just giving you a chance to share some of the, the things you've learned from this. And and mind if you don't mind, maybe finish off by just sharing your testimony uh, in regards to this issue, but also maybe more generally, just uh, just where you're at as a person. Right. Um. Yeah. I think um this trial and through recovery, um, it has made me feel closer to God. I feel His presence and help almost daily, and I believe in a God who loves me personally and intimately, and who cares about the details of my life, and who wants me to be happy. And um. I also, you know, whether whether I was foreordained to have, to have this specific trial or or if it was, you know, just a result of of agency, um, I I believe that that God uses any trial um, for our good, and He can take, you know, the the darkest and saddest parts of our lives and and turn it into something beautiful and also something that we can use to help others um, and to become more like Christ. Um, and I believe in the atonement. Um, recovery has helped me to better recognize Christ's grace and enabling power in my life. I think I shared before, I, I used to have this, this gospel formula that, you know, perform your way to, to earn to earn your perfect life or earn whatever. And um, knowing that I don't have to earn anything or earn my reward and that God loves me as I am um, has really helped me to accept my Savior's love, even though I'm not perfect. And, and when I accept Christ's grace, I, I, I show more grace to myself and I show more grace to others. I feel like I, I have learned a lot of empathy and um, learned to be less judgmental um, through this trial. Um, it's also strengthened my belief in the plan of happiness. Um, 
when everything came out with my husband, it was um, when um, the first of the new um, videos in the temple were released. And, and Eve taught me so much um, in the temple when with tears in her eyes asked, um, is there no other way? And I, I believe I felt similar emotions than we all did when we, we chose to come to earth to experience incredible pain and extremely hard things. But, but we knew this was the only way we could progress and to become like our savior. Um, I, um, one thing, um, sorry, this isn't as, um, this is more specific, but, um, I think my husband and I, um, before he married me and after, we always treated this pornography problem as, as something that needed to be taken care of and brushed under the rug, never to be dealt with again. And every bishop that my husband had ever received counsel from also seemed to support this idea of cleaning things up and getting worthy because pornography problems are embarrassing and disgusting and shameful after all. Um, but, um, and so we kind of seem to have the idea and bishops also seem to encourage this idea to, to read scriptures, fast, pray, to get rid of the problem. I know we've already talked about this, but once we entered into this world of recovery, we realized how flawed this idea was because, um, when we finally read scriptures and attended the temple and prayed with real intent, um, and real intent meaning that we did it to truly connect with God and to learn what his will was for us, um, not just to get rid of this trial in our own convenient and isolated way. Um, we realized how much work God had for us to do and that he truly wanted us to heal and he wanted to share our message of hope and healing with others. Um, and so I think I just really... Um, um, through this trial, I've learned to surrender to, to God's will and, and that, you know, it never, it never was his will for us to, to just push this problem away and, and, you know, get over it. And I mean, yes, we don't have to, act, my husband doesn't have to act out on this again, but he also never plans to, to stop sharing his message of hope with others. Um, and so we really um, both relate to um, the Alma the Younger in regards to addiction and recovery, that nothing was so exquisite and so bitter as were our pains. On the other hand, nothing was so exquisite and sweet as our joy. And we're just so grateful for the healing that has taken place in our lives individually and in our marriage. And um, we're just grateful and, and we just want to share our message of hope and healing with others. And um, one other thing that's been huge for me is just knowing that it's okay, that, that this is basically all I know. You know, I, I believe other things at our church, and I, and I hope to believe other things, um, but I know that where I'm at right now is okay with God and that he has a plan for me, and um, I don't have to know everything or have a perfect testimony to, to do his will. Annie, uh, Annie Hall, I just appreciate you being on today and, and opening yourself up to this story, which, which really allows us to kind of just see inside your life. But by doing that, hopefully this is going to be a help to many other people. And I, uh, I'm just grateful that you've taken your time out of your day to be on today and to, to share your story. And I hope that, uh, many out there will be touched, but more importantly will be helped because I think there's a lot more of us dealing with this kind of an issue than, uh, than some think. Great, thanks. I'm grateful to be able to share my experience. Thank you for being on. All the pain is gone, but I remain 
Say 